Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the FT Business Books podcast. This series is all about books for turbulent times. I'm Helen Barrett, the FT's Work and Careers Editor, and each week I'm joined by our top commentators to talk about the books they have chosen to bring you solace and advice. Returning to the podcast this week is the ever-popular Andrew Hill, FT Management Editor, and FT commentator Miranda Green selects this week's tome. Welcome both. Thank you. This week's book, Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. Not a conventional business book, but a gripping apocalypse drama set in the near future. Before we get to that, Miranda, what are you reading at the moment? Well, because of the general election, I am steeping myself even more than usual in strange recherche UK politics books. And I'm deep in something called Claret and Chips, which is an account of how the SDP was formed in uh, 1981. And it's great fun, Claret and Chips, because of, you know, Roy Jenkins' high living and chips the ability of this new party to unexpectedly reach out to the masses. But of course, it was a doomed project. So in a way, it's appropriate to link that to our apocalyptic theme this week. And Andrew, how about you? What are you reading? Uh, well, I've just read uh, The Golden Passport by Duff MacDonald, which is a book about how Harvard Business School rose to supremacy and whether uh, it has made the most of its um, position as the educator of leaders. And the thesis by Duff MacDonald, the author, is that it hasn't. It has actually betrayed its ideals and misled leaders by following the money, essentially. You wrote about this in your column, and I got the sense that you were convinced by Duff MacDonald's argument. Yes, not 100% convinced. There are bits of it where he exaggerates somewhat the, uh, I think, the role of Harvard Business School in, for example, promoting shareholder value as a a theme. That bit is a little bit overblown. But uh, I think... I think Harvard Business School has a lot going for it. There's no other business school that would merit a book that could have any chance of being as popular as this one's likely to be or as well, or as widely reviewed as this one. It's the only business school that uh, many people have heard of. But it, that with that power comes responsibility. And I think he makes a reasonable case that it has somewhat dodged that responsibility. Miranda, have you read The Golden Passport? I haven't. I think this subject of whether business schools are just promoting the interests of their graduates or promoting the interests of the wider business community and then society or not is very interesting, though. Yes, there's quite a few people who wrote to me and said that that, that's what Harvard Business School or business schools in general are supposed to do. Of course, they follow the money because they are just supplying people for whatever, wherever the demand is. And if the demand is Wall Street or the demand is management consultancies, they will supply financiers and consultants. Can I ask you both, when you write a column, do you, as, you, as you've just described, do you get 
many emails from readers afterwards trying to correct you. What is the sort of feedback? How does it work? I look at the comments and often engage with commentators underneath the column, which may or may not be a good idea, depending on how um, rabid they are. (laughs) In the FT's case, they're usually pretty sensible, and I feel like I ought to continue the conversation. And the column is quite short, so I sometimes think, well, this is a theme that I could expand on, but I'll wait and see if somebody comments on it and then get into it. And then I get a a scattering, not a not usually a huge number of direct emails from either from people I know or sometimes people I don't know, taking issue, uh, and occasional letters to the editor. So there's a, there's a certain amount of engagement comes back. Miranda, what do you do? How do you engage with readers? Um, I think that's right. I think you can say some things in a column, but it needs to be quite pithy. And it's quite interesting to see where the readers take you in terms of what the jumping off off point is for the next sort of related topic. So I find that really helpful, actually. And in terms of sort of mailbag, I did once write a column a long time ago about this idea that women either choose business and choose a working life or choose family life. Now that all comes to a head round about your 35th year. And I got the most incredible mailbag from that, actually. It was before the kind of era of comments beneath. And a lot of young women writing in to say thank you because I don't feel I can say this for myself. So it's funny, actually. You sometimes tap into something amongst readers that you didn't know you were touching a bruise, as it were. So it's always quite nice to feel that you've affected people in a helpful way. That's quite rare, though. Now to this week's book, Station Eleven, a 2014 science fiction novel by Canadian thriller writer Emily St. John Mandel. Miranda, this is your choice. Why is this a book for turbulent times? Well, I think I was being a little bit provocative in choosing this book because we're used to thinking about the challenges of turbulence in a quite constrained way because, let's face it, you know, we live in an affluent society and we're going through periods of intense change to people's working lives, but fundamentally we have a society that functions. This novel is set in the near future after an imaginary virus wipes out 99% of the human population and those who are left have to try and function and recreate a society from scratch. I think that the reason it's kind of interesting philosophically to a business reader is because one of the things that happens, of course, in that kind of apocalyptic scenario is we're no longer thinking how will robots disrupt our lives, which is a subject that obsesses us at the moment. We're thinking... How would you reinvent society without any technology or any of the things from industrial and technological progress that we currently take for granted? So just imagine a world with no electricity. How would you function? How would you create the social group? Who would you choose as your leader? All of these really fundamental questions. And because the novel also switches back from the sort of post-apocalyptic world to what we would recognise very clearly as current life, You get this extraordinary perspective on what our lives are like now, particularly, I think, interestingly, on what our working lives are like now. One of the main characters is a management consultant pre-apocalypse. One is a kind of corporate PA with a secret creative life pre-apocalypse. So then that gives you a sort of perspective on how we all behave and what we get out of life and the very idea of what work is for from this really extreme scenario of a world in which they're having to kind of reinvent a subsistence existence when only 1% of the human population has survived. It's set in Canada. It's very much in the tradition of uh, what Margaret Atwood calls speculative fiction, which is really doing a kind of thought experiment. 
So I'm not sure I would call it science fiction. I'd I'd call it a kind of uh, transposed social realism, which people may or may not think works, but I think is very thought-provoking in terms of the progress that we all have taken for granted to where we arrive now, where we're totally dependent on technology, electricity, functioning utilities. What would we do? How would we cope if that was taken away? Give us a quick pricey. There's there's several sort of plot lines, aren't there? But give give us an overview of the, the main plot. So there are, it's set in, it starts in Toronto, um, where Emily St. John Mandel is from. And uh, there are various interlinking characters who we pick up before the virus hits. And the first half of the novel switches between these characters as it becomes clear that an epidemic is actually the end of society. <laughs> and one of them is an actor, a very famous actor. One of them is his estranged wife who is a sort of creative genius on the side, but who has this life as a corporate PA, which she uses as a kind of mask against difficult emotions and against her own creativity in a way. And then as as the book progresses, it's the escape from the city. How do you get out from a city where everything's falling to pieces? Later on, you sort of pick up the story a couple of decades later with those who have survived this disastrous flu epidemic and who've tried to rebuild micro-societies in a sort of subsistence way. And that's where it gets really interesting because you pick up with some of these characters who you've met in Toronto before the flu crisis and they are very interestingly rediscovering things which give life meaning one of which is art and music. There are characters who are involved in something called the Travelling Symphony, which goes from encampment to encampment, bringing Shakespeare productions and chamber music to the wilderness. So that's a kind of interesting comment on sort of human meaning that can continue after after a disaster. And then some of the characters find themselves living, living permanently in an airport where, of course, you know, the planes have ceased to take off or land. And they sort of build their own proto-city in the airport. And one of the characters, fascinatingly, creates a museum there, which is effectively a museum of all the things that we now take for granted, all the technological gadgets, you know, everything from typewriters to iPhones to the files that he had with him on his business trip. And it's a kind of frozen-in-aspect experience of contemporary life in this in this museum that he creates in the in 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 the, in the encampment in the uh, in the airport i personally very much enjoyed the kind of blending of the thriller elements of the book which are to do with survival in this harsh post apocalyptic uh scenario with this very human element of people looking back on their life pre the disaster trying to rebuild their life after it and trying to evaluate what gives life meaning. And I think work is a strong element of that on both sides of the uh, flu epidemic that wipes out most people. Andrew, what did you make of this vision of a technology-free future? Well, I I thought it was very thought-provoking and very gripping. And as Miranda's explained, I think one of the interesting things in the structure of the book is that the, the before and the after... Uh, is separated by about 20 years. You're given to understand in the after that the five or six years immediately after this epidemic have been horrendous and there's been violence and and people are carrying tattoos that indicate where they've had to kill somebody. And that has passed and we're in a slightly more peaceful but still uncertain and unstable world, which is just emerging back into some of the structures 
that existed beforehand. Um, so you're beginning to see the re-emergence of civilization. The museum that uh, Miranda referred to is, he calls it the Museum of Civilization because it has all these dead iPhones and uh, unusable uh, motorbikes and things like that in it, in a part of the departure lounge where they where they have set up their city. But I thought it was, similarly to Miranda, really, I, I mean, what I thought was very, very thought-provoking was the perspective that it gives us on the world that we take for granted now of the internet, of technology, of electricity. There's some very, very key moments in the part where the pandemic has just struck where those who have survived realise that the electricity has gone off and will never come back. And other elements where the characters recognise that they are doing something for the last time, for example, eating an orange, because nobody's going to be able to bring oranges to North America any longer because there's no transport and no way of doing so. So all those things, I think, support the idea that although this is clearly not a business book... It does have lots to say about giving perspective to the things that we take for granted day for day. It's pretty depressing for the first half. I found it a hard-to-read book. It reminded me a little bit of one of my favourite books, Cormac McCarthy's The Road, although it's written in a much more approachable way than The Road uh, and is, is probably slightly less dark in that it does describe essentially a fragile civilization but still a civilization. Yes, I did wonder if she was influenced by the road. Well, I suppose you could say because that's one of the most famous post-apocalyptic books made into a film of course and very well known that she can't have escaped its influence and it does have a road trip if you like at the center of it because the symphony is the traveling symphony and they are moving between places and insofar as the plot which is I think pretty gripping as I said moves along, it moves along with the travelling symphony trying to find the sanctuary of this airport where the uh, where civilization has sort of re-established itself. Yes, it does rattle along, doesn't it, much like a thriller? Yes, I think actually since you're talking about sort of the influences on her, I think she is very influenced by Margaret Atwood actually and I very recently reread The Handmaid's Tale which is another great example of this idea of speculative fiction, where you imagine society as you know it and human interaction as you know it through this dramatically shifted prism of a social experiment or something that's gone badly wrong. And obviously The Handmaid's Tale, that's to do with a kind of authoritarian regime post a nuclear war. And this is sort of of different. But, you know, obviously she is from Toronto and Margaret Atwood is like the GYN of Canadian fiction. So I suspect that that's a very strong influence as well. So there are some work and careers themes in the book, despite it being an apocalyptic thriller. And Miranda, there is a management consultant character, isn't there? Give us give us a reading. Yes, absolutely. So this uh, gentleman who sets up the, the museum... He has been a management consultant and he, before uh, the apocalypse strikes, he's been doing 360-degree reviews, <laughs> <laughs> something that's probably all too familiar to our our listeners. And there's a wonderful scene at the end where he's sitting in the airport with another of the survivors and they're looking back through the business files that he had with him at the time at these wonderful sort of jargon-laden phrases and they're just amazed that anybody ever spoke like that about humans. So there's a bit, he says, subordinates, Garrett said. OK, so under communication, here's the first comment. 
He's not good at cascading to staff. Was he a whitewater rafter clerk? I'm just curious. <laughs> yes, I'm certain that's what the interview was about. Actual literal cascades. And he says later, I'm proud to say that I never talked like that. So it's a really good sort of takedown of business jargon. And it also sort of makes the whole exercise of, you know, this corporate judgment of individuals as whether they're functional or not within the corporate environment look utterly ridiculous from the situation of a, of a human society trying to rein, reinvent itself. So I thought that was a very clever touch, actually. And yet societies, leaderships and hierarchies do emerge. Well, they do. They? they do. And there's one particularly sort of sinister leadership figure who's a kind of cult-like uh, chap called, who's known as the Prophet, who emerges from the chaos um, and leads a very sort of violent subgroup and eventually sort of gets his comeuppance. I don't think that's too much of a spoiler there. But at the same time, the leader of the Travelling Symphony, the conductor, in fact, mm. she is a leader who is clearly, seems to have the right combination of, you know, smart, good sense and... Compassion. Um, yeah, compassion for her troop. There are, I think there are different sort of touches on different structures that might emerge from the chaos and how some of them could go off awry and others, including the ones who have established at the airport. There's a big, interesting central scene reminiscent a bit of sort of Lord of the Flies when they realise that they're not getting out of the airport and they have to start deciding what they're going to do in order to survive. And actually they seem to take the right decisions, more or less, some of them go off the rails, some of them try to fly out and are never seen again. But there's a, I, I, I like the sense that order does somehow kind of return. If you begin to see the possibilities, you've got the right people in the right place, you can, you can re-establish civilization. Yes, absolutely. And I would say that it's not a bleak read, actually. I mean, it's quite frightening. Yes. But I think it isn't bleak because there are these points of light that emerge in terms of human cooperation and ability to reform social groups and to find solutions to problems jointly. And then at the end, there's literal points of light emerging because they see in the distance that somebody has managed to put an electricity grid back together. So they actually see the points of light. And then you're kind of left with this really fascinating moment of thinking, well, from all that they've learned through the survival experience, what society would then be like should you re-establish the ability to, to regain the technology that you know that you've lost? Because, of course, people in previous centuries who were living without the technology that we all take for granted, they didn't know what they were missing, as it were. The point about this kind of social experimental group in the novel is that they know what's missing. So when they see it re-emerge in those points of light on the horizon, they wonder about that. But also, Andrew, I completely agree with you about the and the problem solving in the airport is fascinating and certainly for anybody in our uh, of our listeners who've ever been sent on those corporate away day things where you're sort of dumped in the forest with your colleagues and you all have to find your way back or the FT doesn't send no, us we, on those sudden. luckily we don't get those here but you know and I've, I've certainly heard of people who you know as part of their business school course you know they are all sent to solve some problem jointly in the wilderness what more extreme example of a kind of corporate away day could you get than, than imagining yes. that post-apocalypse you're trying to uh, survive with your friends and colleagues in mm. an airport with, no, an with the food running out? An experimental course waiting to be designed. <laughs> yes. I mean, one of the, one of the important <laughs> things in it, I suppose, is that the 20-year gap between the before and the after 
is rather crucial because, of course, it means that some people have grown to adulthood without knowing anything about the previous civilization, and others have all the memory of what what it was like before. And, and the the passage that you, the sort of Lucy Kellowayish passage on jargon that you mentioned, which I had also highlighted, is interesting partly because they're they're sort of wistful for the life that they used to lead. But at the same time, and it is an optimistic thought, they're kind of saying, well, we've, we've jettisoned all that stuff that didn't that was meaningless and they've rediscovered something about the meaning of what they're they're currently doing um and the the symphony has this uh, bus that they've obviously repurposed to be drawn by horses which has on the side a quote from star trek about survival is not sufficient which i i think is well, it's a fun reference to actual science fiction in a book that is semi-science fiction but it's also, I think, quite an interesting motto, really, for what, how people have to, once they have survived, have to find something else of meaning to do in their work and in their play, to a degree, in order to make something out of out of life. I think that's quite a nice touch, actually. Well, it is, and it sort of draws us to the importance. So art is quite an important value Absolutely, in, the, in yeah. the book. So they are going around playing beautiful music and reciting beautiful verse to these communities and that sort of helps continue the idea of finding meaning and also I think something that Andrew and I both quite liked about uh, about the novel is newspapers turn out to be a point of hope as yes, well. Yes, big shout-out shout shout out for print. Shout out for print. <laughs> exactly, so somebody in a what used to be a community library decides to do a post-apocalypse newsletter, which turns out to be quite important to the plot as a plot device, but also what a wonderful idea. So, I mean, it's reassured me greatly. So when the apocalypse <laughs> come, I know that at least I can do a newsletter. <laughs> newsletter. <laughs> newsletter. Even if I might not be so good at the subsistence farming, but, you know. Yeah, there's a line at the end, it's a question, which is a hopeful question about saying, if there are again towns with streetlights, if there are symphonies and newspapers, then what else might the awakening world contain? So newspapers are the bearer of hope in this case. Is it an anti-technology novel? I mean, Miranda, we were talking earlier before before the podcast about the sorts of jobs and uh, professions that seem to be valued in the book, which include, as you mentioned, art, music, theatre, painting, and a very sort of analogue version of journalism. Is there a sense that, that one of the themes of the book is is a creeping distrust of technology? I'm not sure about that because, as Andrew has said, electricity <laughs> turns out to be such a <laughs> phenomenally important thing to, for us to have lost. And so, I mean, it's not actually explicit in the book, but when I was having a look at it again last night to revise for our podcast, Helen, um, <laughs> I realised that actually the sort of hidden theme of the book is the importance of engineers. So yes, there we are. Yeah. Because, because actually, if you're going to reinvent the electricity grid... Um, for stage three that begins after the novel ends, you know, you need your engineers and you need your techies. So I think that actually becomes quite fundamental. But I think some of the other things that gain value in the novel after the crisis are the things to do with human relationships and the caring roles, like bringing up children. There's a lot of bringing up children post-apocalypse in the novel, even though it's a kind of background to the main plot. You know, and that's arguably something we could think about valuing a bit more highly ourselves. Yes, and one of the central characters is a paramedic in the pre-apocalypse life, and he returns later and manages to repair a, a shotgun wound 
you see the skills that he's developed as a paramedic to be being things that he values and his prior life before being a paramedic this is getting into the, one of the subplots is as a paparazzi um photographer of celebrities and so he has gone for something more meaningful just before this pandemic hits and then of course the skills that he's developed there turn out to be valuable yes he's our midlife career changer character yes <laughs> So this is not the first novel that we have featured on the Business Books podcast. Mike Skopinka in Series 1 chose Catch-22. Miranda, what can novels teach us that business books can't? Well, what a great question. Earlier in the year, um, I was looking at a, a business book called Stand Firm by Sven Brinkman, who is a professor in Denmark who thinks that we should all stop reading business books immediately. And in his book, Stand Firm, one of his chapters is actually called Read a Novel. And his thesis is quite interesting. It's really that novels can give a perspective on life and draw attention to philosophical questions that we should be pondering in a way that business books cannot. The other genre that he's very down on is the kind of business biography. And I think one of the key points is that, you know, the the idea of life as something we can control this this supposedly empowering idea that we're all in charge of our own destiny and if we can only get the right skill sets together and damp down our negative emotions enough we can succeed in writing our own life story and hey maybe one day someone will turn it into a film you know that is actually the opposite of good literature and a good novel will show you that actually life is not about one individual's control it's about sort of a sense of humility, really, in knowing your place in amongst the tumult of how society is changing around you. And I think that's also why, in turbulent times, we should often look to fiction, not business books. Andrew, fiction or well, I mean, I, I'm a business literature English literature graduate, so I'm always interested in in fiction. And I've, insofar as I influence what gets to be filtered into the uh, long list for the Business Book of the Year Award, I'm always on the lookout for fiction. But in fact, only two books, two novels have ever made the uh, the long list. One, one of them was Joshua Ferris's book, Then We Came to the End, which is uh, set in an office. It's about office life, essentially. And the other one, uh, which I recommend even more strongly, is Adam Hazlitt's book, Union Atlantic, which is about a banker caught in the early stages of the crisis I have to say, having witnessed the judges then judging the book award, that neither of those books got much attention from the judges. Neither of them got through to the shortlist, and they weren't even very deeply discussed in the judging sessions that we had. Why was that, do you think? Well, I I mean, partly I wonder whether business book inevitably tends towards non-fiction and therefore the novel is considered to be a sort of frivolous edition. Partly it may be that they're not the right books. I mean, I think it would have been hard for a judging panel, had we been running the award at the time, to have ignored Bonfire of the Vanities, for example, or even A Man in Full, Tom Wolfe's other big book about... uh, Uh, business. Uh, And of course, go back even further and you'd say, well, there's plenty of Dickens that you would certainly have said would be casting a very strong light on on how business is done or was done during the Victorian era. So it may just be that the right book hasn't come along. I think to Miranda's point about Sven Brinkman's analysis, CEOs, I may have mentioned this on this podcast before, but CEOs who I've met are very keen on biography. 
they love the idea of being able to compare themselves with great leaders of the past and look at these whole lives that they think they can somehow imitate or emulate. And so biographies, in fact, last year's Book Award was won by a biography of, uh, of Alan Greenspan, and biographies of business leaders have been far more successful in getting through to the final shortlist of the of the Book Award. But, you know, I would like to see more novels. There's a, another prosaic reason, which is that it's the publishers who enter the books, and uh, they have a particular definition of business books which excludes fiction. So they're unlikely to be thinking, oh yes, we've got a business, uh, fiction book, that a fiction bestseller, which might well be also considered for the, the book award. So there may be a problem of categorization there. I'd, li- I'd like to encourage more business people to read read more fiction. I think it could be very valuable. Maybe also it would be nice if more novelists actually looked at the world of work in well, that's the broadest true. sense. That's because, true. you know, I mean, you were talking about Dickens, who obviously is the most celebrated example of seeing work and industry and society in, in, a, in, a, in a whole landscape brought alive through character. But, you know, Mrs Gaskell as well, there are other great examples of seeing moments of industrial turbulence and industrial progress you know, through the prism of the characters who are, who are undergoing it. But maybe it's a sort of really underexplored area because, I mean, I agree with you about Joshua Ferris being probably the most high-profile example of a kind of workplace novel yes. of the last few years. But that's actually, in a way, sort of dealing with the downsides of office life, isn't yes. it? It's not yes. dealing with these deeper questions of uh, Yes, and in most, in most in other fiction, work, work becomes a kind of incidental part of what's of the inner life of the of the people even though you assume as in society that most people are in work most of the time most of the time so therefore there is plenty plenty of material unexplored there i mean maybe we are being over ambitious to assume that people would write only about work but i I, occasionally i get glimpses uh, in novels of the way a novel might have gone down a more business Route examining what uh, what business is about, but generally their books about dynasties or families in uh, large businesses, those kinds of books which tend to examine quite naturally the family relationships rather than the business relationships. Nineteenth century did it better, actually. They did it very well, but you know, the, arguably we're living through. I mean, if we are living through this sort of third industrial revolution, then we'd probably better get on with the fiction to accompany it. Yeah, that's true. In fact, I think. Probably that is a theme that people may well be, novelists may well already be uh, be addressing because any industrial revolution is going to generate human stories that people should be examining. I'm going to ask you both to choose one work of literature that you think all business leaders should read. Andrew, you mentioned Dickens. Yes, uh, and you know, I'm not sure whether it would be. I'm not sure whether it would be Dickens. I mean, I must say that although it's not as well known as his as uh, Bonfire of the Vanities, I think A Man in Full is uh, by Tom Wolfe is a really, really interesting book on business and business people in crisis. And the other one would be Union Atlantic, as I mentioned, by Adam Hazlitt, which I thought is a very fine book. Miranda, which would you recommend? Oh, well, that's a really, really hard question. <laughs> I think I would send people back to George Eliot, actually, um, and either to Middlemarch as the kind of Ooh, ultimate... Commitment. <laughs> Commitments are good. 
you know, if you can teach yourself to jump off a bungee, whatever, for your corporate persona <laughs> development, you can <laughs> certainly, you certainly read, read Middlemarch. Um, because that, I think, is the best example in English literature of seeing life clearly and seeing it whole and this idea of people's working lives and family lives fitting into society as it changes. But they could also read Silas Marner, which is, of course, a kind of parable about the dangers of too much love of money. I mean, you could we shouldn't ignore Shakespeare. I know that we're going to be talking about uh, Shakespeare play later in this podcast series with Mike Skopinka. Um, but as Station Eleven shows, you know, there is great value in what Shakespeare laid down as reasons to think about how human relationships and leadership and all the things that we write about uh, in the Financial Times uh, evolve. Those were already written about by Shakespeare. Power. Power, indeed. Join us again in two weeks' time when Isabel Berwick will be talking to Lucy Kellaway on her choice of book, Miss Pettigrew Lives for a Day. That podcast is out on June the 12th. Until then, thank you to Miranda Green, to Andrew Hill and to Yanina Conboy, our producer. And thank you for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.